Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and invite you to respond, thanks be to God. Today's reading is Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 37. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying I am he and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved." But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And, if, and then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect but be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn, that, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. 
So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. For that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen, amen. Thank you, Kyle, for reading all 37 verses there this morning. Amen. Always a good week when we can have a choir. And uh, thanks for Robbie for leading us out on the guitar down front here. If you don't get to see that, that's a treat each week. Uh, man, good morning. So glad you guys are here. My name is Ian. Privilege of being one of the pastors here at the King's Church. I haven't had a chance to meet you yet. And I'm uh, really glad that you're here to worship with us. I want to go ahead and dismiss our kids for Kingdom Kids at this time. If you are in preschool, you can head over here to this side. If you are in K through one, over here to this side. Uh, elementary age students, you guys are hanging out with us today. You got a great passage to hang out for. So uh, if you need a clipboard to follow along for the sermon, feel free to grab one from the uh, connection room. Parents, those are available in there as well if you want to help your kids out. And uh, with that, uh, we will go ahead and jump in. Uh, pretty simple passage. No questions, right? Pretty self-explanatory. Now, you know it's going to be a fun week of sermon prep when on uh, Monday morning I open up like the smartest, most likable Bible commentator that I know, and he begins his comments on this chapter by saying, quote, this is one of the most perplexing and controversial chapters in the Bible to understand, end quote. So buckle up. We've got a work cut out for us. I am likely not going to answer every question that you might have uh, in this passage, or maybe that came to mind as we read that, uh, but I think, by God's grace, and you can pray that God would help us during this time, I think I've found the thread line that I want us to follow that will not only help us understand Mark 13 better, but it actually would warm our hearts for what it means for our lives. Uh, the reason why this passage has been so perplexing and controversial is that it has been used by many uh, to make some, let me just put it lightly, some wild and maybe irresponsible speculations about the end times. And if we can just be honest for a minute, like Christians are just weird about that stuff, aren't they? Like we're weird, like let's just own it. We get real weird. I mean, there's like how many bestsellers in the Left Behind series? How many movies, right? I mean, we, we love to talk about that stuff. People start to get out charts and checklists and line up everything that Jesus is talking about. And then when they're wrong, rather than just repenting and trusting what the Bible says, that we don't know the day or the hour, they move on to the next prediction and the cycle continues. Here's the, here's the problem with that way of reading this passage. And by the way, this passage also has parallels in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. Reading the passage, just thinking about the end times, rips it completely out of the context and the flow of the Gospel of Mark. So if you came this morning and it's your first time Welcome, you've jumped in at a crazy point. But if you've been with us, we've been walking with Mark now for a long time. And this is intentionally put right here by Mark. And so before we start speculating about things beyond that, we don't want to fall victim to ripping this out of context. This is actually Jesus' longest, sustained, uninterrupted teaching block in all of the Gospel of Mark. And so we need to put this in the context of Mark's Gospels 
Mark's gospel with his themes and with his emphasis and with the context surrounding what he's been leading to up to this moment, rather than importing on top of that the headline news of the day. Maybe to borrow an analogy that I found helpful this week, let's think about it this way. By reading forward from the original context rather than backward from our vantage point 2,000 years later, it's kind of like words written on a glass door. Once you've gone through that door, if you turn around and look at the text, well, now it's written backward, and it's a little bit difficult to decipher, isn't it? In order to make sense of what was written, we have to do our best to imagine and to be faithful to what is written on the other side of the door, as it would have appeared to those to whom it was originally written for. And that's our task today, and that's what we're going to attempt to do. And here's the thing. My proposal this morning is when we do just that, we realize that Jesus might not be talking about what we assume he's talking about. There's your teaser for the morning. All right, let me give you our main idea, then we definitely are going to pray, and then we're going to jump in, okay? Here's our main idea this morning. We must endure through the hardships of this present world, staying alert and awake for the return of Christ. We must endure through the hardships of this present world, staying alert and awake for the return of Christ. Uh, let's pray. Would you pray with me? Ask the Lord to help us in his word. Uh, Father, we do need your help today. We thank you for the gift of your word. And when we come to complex and confusing passages such as this, uh, we uh, ask that you would illuminate its truths to us. Help us to not import our own understanding, our own theories on this before we sit underneath it as an authority over our lives. And Holy Spirit, may you show us what this text means, how it points us to the hope of the gospel, and may that stir up within us a greater worship, a greater gratitude for Christ, and greater faithfulness and obedience in the present place that you have called us to. May you accomplish that good work in and through our time now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to move as quickly and concisely as I can through this passage in three movements. We're going to talk about endurance and suffering, the exaltation of Christ, and then expecting his return. Let's begin with endurance and suffering. Look at Mark 13, verse 1. And as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples, I love it's an anonymous disciple, by the way, in this story, uh, said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, let's pause there for a moment. We must remember the context if we're to approach this passage in the right way as I'm advocating. Uh, Jesus has had his triumphal entry into Jerusalem back in Mark chapter 11. And the last two chapters, 11 and 12, have revolved, if you've been with us, completely around the temple. Jesus is either in the temple, leaving the temple, going back to the temple, talking about the temple, teaching in its courtyards. Over and over again, the temple is the theme. And he's been challenging what the temple had come to stand for in this day and those religious leaders that oversaw it and made sure the status quo was maintained. But his disciples don't seem to grasp this yet. So they come out of the temple, one of them looks back at it, and this anonymous disciple begins to marvel at its architecture and its construction. Now, as we've discussed, the temple and the temple complex truly would have been a breathtaking structure. Herod was known as Herod the Great for his great building projects. He was obsessed with grandeur and with magnificent buildings, and the temple was his preeminent example of this. He expanded what was a meager rebuilding of the second temple after the Babylonian exile into something huge. 
You could fit 12 football fields inside of the 35-acre complex that he enlarged. The size of the Temple Mount and the stones used in construction were larger than any known temple in the ancient world. The areas surrounding the temple were constructed high into the sky, accented in gold, silver, crimson, and purple. All of it spared no expense, and it was meant to point to royalty. The Jewish historian Josephus says that from a distance, the temple complex looked like a snow-clad mountain rising up in the Middle East. So the comment from the unnamed disciple makes sense. This temple had become a source of great pride for the Jewish people. There was a bit of a sentiment that it was a sign of God's blessing and that it was indestructible. But Jesus clearly does not share their sentiments. Verse 2, and Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This is Jesus making explicit what he's been saying implicitly for two chapters. Remember, he cursed a fig tree that withered and died, and sandwiched right in between that was his clearing out of the temple, a not-so-subtle symbol that just as that fig tree has withered and died, so too will happen to this temple, this big, beautiful building that stood as a symbol of national pride and religious identity for the Jewish people, despite the Roman occupation, would be torn down, stone by stone. Some of those stones, by the way, more than 40 feet long. It would take a truly massive event for that to take place, but here's the thing, that is precisely what happens in 70 AD. The Romans besiege Jerusalem for a horrendous five months, and then General Titus, who is a future emperor, flattens and levels the temple. The shock and the horror and the disorientation for the Jewish people was almost unbearable in that time period, but yet, here is Jesus, some 40-ish years before that, predicting that's exactly what's going to happen. Continue in verse 3. And he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Okay, must pause here. This is the prompt that Jesus is responding to. Okay, it's essentially two questions. When will this happen? When will stone by stone be thrown down in this temple, number one? And secondly, how do we know it's going to happen? What are the signs? Okay. Everything that Jesus says is in response to those two questions. Now, that second question, it does have a bit of an eschatological or end times ring to it. In Matthew's account of this passage, over in Matthew 24, the disciples ask it like this, tell us, Jesus, when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You see, there's an assumption seeping out of the disciples that the destruction of the temple must mean it's the end of the age. After all, if there's all this expectation and pride and identity with their religious practices with the temple, well, if that's destroyed, then the Messiah must be coming back. Christ must be returning. That's the assumption that is there, but Jesus is going to challenge that. Verse 5, Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Jesus warns them immediately, listen, your desire for a sign could lead you astray. He's essentially saying, don't jump to hasty conclusions. And then he jumps into observations, six of them I've summarized, 
as to what life is going to look like for them in this world. But here's the thing. They aren't actually signs. They are non-signs. He's saying, you're going to see all these things take place, and don't think that means the end is coming. It's actually the opposite of that. Watch out. Be on guard. Do not be deceived. All of these things are going to happen, but it is not yet the end. In fact, in verse 8, he's going to talk about them being the beginning of the birth pains. A birth signifies a beginning, not an end. Jesus is saying, this is not the end. You want to know the future, but don't miss what's happening in the present. Don't let future speculation overcome present obedience and faithfulness. By the way, do you see the irony of how this passage is used now? People are like, oh, earthquakes, right, war going on, this person. They're like, oh, let's add up all the dots. And Jesus is saying, these are non-signs. It's not yet the end, okay? So let's look at what this life in the first century and really life in a fallen world is marked by. First of all, in verse 6, messianic pretenders. Jesus says, many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. You need to look no further than the book of Acts throughout the New Testament and early church history to see that this happened over and over and over again. Secondly is military conflict in verse 7. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. In the first century, there were wars happening all over the known world, often spurred on by the ruthlessness of the Roman emperors and the way that they ruled with an iron fist. Most notably in 66 AD, the Jewish-Roman War began, and ever since, as Pastor Andrew noted for us a few months ago, war is just the norm of human history. Times of peace are by far the exception, not the majority. Thirdly, we see political upheaval in verse 8, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Then we see natural disasters after that. It says there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then we see persecution and martyrdom in verse 9, but be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Go down to verse 11. When they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my namesake. This is, if you look at church history, the track record of the early church. They faced horrible persecution. Many of them, including these very disciples who were hearing this message, would be martyred for their faith, often as a public display to try to make a mockery of them before all. This is exactly what happened to the early church. This is what's happened to Christians all around the world ever since then. But right in the middle of that is this word of hope in verse 10. And Jesus says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Now let's pause there for just a minute. In the midst of all of that darkness and suffering and devastation, Jesus says, but the gospel is going to go forth to the whole world. It will be proclaimed to all nations. Now there are some who take this very woodenly to say that literally every single person on the earth needs to be evangelized and then Christ will return. Now listen, we should by all means chase after that church. We should be faithful to the Great Commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But I believe Jesus here is speaking of the gospel going forth into the Gentile world. 
Those of you who are studying the book of Acts, remember the key verse in the book of Acts is Acts 1.8. He says, you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Which is, by the way, precisely what happens in the book of Acts. Before 70 AD, the gospel has gone forth to the known world and out to the Gentile nations. Paul says in Romans 1, the gospel has been proclaimed through the Roman church in all the world. Now, let's step back. That is all what Jesus is saying life is going to look like. And in one sense, that's exactly what life looked like in the first century. But in another sense, that's what life has always looked like in a fallen world, isn't it? This is exactly what life looks like after sin entered, messed up the shalom of a perfect world, and has wrecked chaos on all things. It has always been this way since Jesus says these words, and it will be this way until he returns. So why does this matter? Well, look at the exhortation of Jesus at the end of verse 13, because the exhortation for them, I believe, is the same exhortation for us. He says this at the end of verse 13, after you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus says this is what life looks like, and what does that mean? You must endure. Don't throw in the towel. Don't quit. It is not going to be easy, to say the least. But a saving faith is a persevering faith. Listen, brothers and sisters, the scriptures are crystal clear in the New Testament that suffering is the norm in this life. It may vary from person to person and time period to time period and in its flavors and shapes, but as Peter tells us in his letter, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, when the fiery trial comes upon you. That is life in this broken, fallen world. And that suffering, by the way, is not a bug in the system. This doesn't mean that God has failed or that something has gone wrong or not according to plan. No, everything's going according to plan. The gospel's going forth to the ends of the earth. This is the track record of the church. Persecution, suffering, trying to snuff it out, but yet the seed of the gospel just keeps spreading. Jesus here is being pastoral before he's being provocative about the end times. In the face of deception, chaos, in a world of trouble and hardship, he's looking at his disciples and he's saying, do not be alarmed and endure. Keep running the race. You need to lift your eyes, yes, to see the glorious future, but then live faithfully in the present. This is what Peter says over in 1 Peter 1. He says, In this you rejoice, though not for a little while, if necessary. You've been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in what? Praise and glory and honor when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, suffering is the norm. Do not be surprised. It is okay to lament that suffering and to long for the return of Christ, but in the meantime, we endure. We fix our eyes on Jesus, and we keep running the race. We endure trusting that it is refining us into Christ-likeness. We endure through suffering. All right, secondly, the exaltation of Christ. I'm going to need you to stay with me here, okay? Everybody caffeinated? Are we good? We need to work through this, all right? I'm going to split this into three subsections so we can try to track what's going on here. Okay, the first subsection I want to look at is the Roman destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Okay, there is a noticeable shift that goes on here in verse 14. He says this, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, 
Mark says, let the reader understand. So you guys understand? The readers understand? Great. We'll move on. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. All right, Jesus here, I believe, is giving the sign that the four disciples ask for back up in verses 4 and 5. And that sign is when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be. So what in the world is he talking about? Well, we need to see two things here. First of all, this phrase, abomination of desolation, comes from the book of Daniel, okay? And it's in the second half of Daniel. So when you're reading CBR, you read the first part of Daniel, you're like, man, this is really cool. We got Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. We got Daniel in the lion's den. Then you hit chapter 7, and you're like, is this the same book? Because 7 through 12 is visions of the end and dreams and all sorts of things that is even written in a different language. It's, it's a challenging read, okay? But three times in the second half of the book, he mentions an abomination of desolation which means an object of disgust or revulsion that causes offense and extreme idolatry. Now, Daniel's prophecy, nearly everyone agrees about the abomination of desolation, is talking about something that came true in the second century B.C. So, in 168 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes, a name that he gave himself meaning the manifest of God, a Syrian general came into Jerusalem, and he killed 40,000 Jews. He took over the temple. He sacrificed a pig, an unclean animal, on the altar. He sprinkled broth from pigs all over the holy places. And then he erected an altar to Zeus in the temple. It's the height of sacrilege. Now, that had already happened. The Jewish people knew that connection. So Jesus here is likely saying, listen, something as jarring and as horrible as that is going to take place. This is prefiguring something as equally or even more outrageous and offensive that is to come. And of course, he's talking in the context here still about the temple. Now, there's been quite a few speculations as to what exactly this was. As you can guess, I don't know what the right answer is. Here's what most people argue, and I think it's, it's convincing to me. The clearest answer would take into account the immediate context, which is the prediction of the destruction of the temple. And most scholars talk about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD in ways that do sound something like this. Over in the parallel passage in Luke 21 in verse 20, it says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, i.e. the Roman armies, then know that its desolation of all words has come near. After the Roman general Titus besieged Jerusalem and before he destroys the temple, he enters into the temple complex and the legions of soldiers all offer, offer sacrifices there and worship him as some kind of Roman god. And notice that Mark says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, not it. And Jesus is clear, when all this is going down, uh, it's time to go. It's time to leave. He says specifically those in Judea. You see, if this was generally about the end times, this doesn't really make a lot of sense. For those living there in that time, listen, you need to leave because it's going to be awful. 
That's the description through verse 20. We know historically the Roman siege of Jerusalem was horrible. People were trapped in the city, unable to access food. Some resorted to cannibalism to stay alive. They ran out of crosses to crucify people. You can get a flavor from there. Jesus warns, I think speaking with a proverbial and prophetic rhetoric, there will be tribulation since there never has been and never will be. Again, I think he's just speaking in a prophetic rhetoric. It's going to be horrible. And Christians, by the way, historically on the whole, they got out of Dodge. When this was all going down, the Christians on the whole left Jerusalem. They were overwhelmingly spared because they heeded these instructions. Jesus says eventually the horror will end and be cut short, showing God's mercy in the midst of his judgment. But then come verses 21 and following. Notice what he says. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. He says, listen, when you see that go down, people are going to start saying that I'm back. And what does he say? Don't believe it. That is not the end. This is not yet my time. Be on guard. Be watchful. Don't be led astray by those who claim that that is the case. To me, that's the most natural reading of what's going on in this text, okay? That's the Roman destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that seems to be the abomination of desolation he's describing. Okay, secondly, the vindication of the Son of Man, verses 23 through 27. Let me read it. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then... They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, if you can believe it, this is actually admittedly the hardest section in this entire passage to interpret. Now, when you read that, I'm guessing most of you think, well, that has to be referring to the second coming of Christ. And it very well could be. Lots of people believe that. Okay? It could be Jesus making his promised return at some time in the future, coming on the clouds, signifying God's presence and power and glory, and gathering the church to himself. That could be what's being said here. I think, however, it might not be that simple. It doesn't capture the flow of what Mark is saying. The next part of the story is going to go back to the fig tree. Now, the fig tree, we already know from Jesus in this section, is dealing with the temple. Okay, So it'd be weird if he takes kind of this break in the middle to talk about something else and then come back to the temple. There's a way to read this where I think this actually is still talking about the destruction of the temple. In Matthew's account, Jesus says here at the beginning, immediately after the tribulation of those days, this is going to take place. So I tend to agree with scholars who contend this is still talking about the destruction of the temple. Let me give you a case for that. And then more importantly, because we're not just here to get smarter, uh, and I'm not that smart. Uh, we're here to learn why that matters, okay? First of all, the language of the sun and moon being darkened, the stars falling from the sky, that language is in the Old Testament quite a bit. You can look at Isaiah 13, Isaiah 34, Ezekiel 32. And in the Old Testament, when that's used, it's talking about chaos going on on the earth and heaven being shaken because of all of the destruction that's taking place here. This earthly tribulation is causing and unsettling in the heavens. And then Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. 
Clearly, the Son of Man is a reference in the Old Testament to Daniel 7. Let me read Daniel 7 for you. It should be on the screen. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. But notice, he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, Jesus is going to pick up on that Son of Man language later to talk about his return, but there in Daniel 7, notice that's not talking about the return of Christ, that's talking about the ascension of Christ. It's talking about the exaltation of Jesus. And so he seems to be saying here, the Son of Man will be exalted. You will see him lifted up. And to make it even more complicated, here you go, coming, Son of Man coming on the clouds could mean coming or going. Literally in the Greek, it depends on the context. You have to make an interpretive call. Is he coming or is he going? We don't know. Angels in the Greek is the word messengers, okay? So it's possible that Jesus is right now lifted up and exalted in heaven as the vindicated, glorified Son of Man. He has sent his messengers out into the world. And what is he doing right now? Is he not gathering the lost into his church? Is he not going to the ends of the earth and bringing people back to himself? That's one way to read this passage. Now, why does that matter? Because it's a vindication for Jesus. Think about this for a minute. Everything he just predicted would indeed come true, wouldn't it? Everything. And they would have thought it was unthinkable that the temple would be destroyed as Jesus says it in a sentence here. And the temple and those who were in charge of it stood against Jesus. They're going to condemn him as a criminal, as a blasphemer. He is going to be crucified. But yet, Jesus is vindicated. The stone the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. He is rejected, condemned, and crucified, but then he is raised, ascended, and enthroned as king over all. And when the temple is destroyed and all those events take place, people are going to see that Jesus was right. And they're going to see that he's ruling and reigning. Or, this could be a promise of his return. And if so, come Lord Jesus, okay? But however, let's keep going. Lastly, the lesson of the fig tree. Jesus says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Again, this is Jesus' answer to the question of when this will happen. Just as the fig tree gives indications through the way that it naturally begins to bloom that summer is near, all of the events that we just described will give indications when this temple is going to be destroyed. And Jesus says it here, this generation will not pass away before this happens. Again, if you start imposing too much of the second coming here, how does that commandment make sense? This generation will not pass away. So he brings back the fig tree, already associated with the temple in Mark. And he says, listen, these signs will tell you when it's coming, and this is how you ought to live. Now, why does all that matter? Let's turn the corner now. Listen to this from Sam Storms. This is so important. He says, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and God's judgment on Israel in 70 AD is all about Jesus. It's about who he is and how he reigns as sovereign Lord. 
It's about the truth of who he claimed to be as over against the blasphemous lies and rejection of him by the religious leaders in Israel, together with the extent and duration of his dominion over all creation. Jesus is the true temple of God. He is the person and place of sacrifice where forgiveness is found and God's voice is heard and God's glory and presence are encountered. So when the temple in Jerusalem was raised, leveled, and flattened, such that not one stone was left upon another, the people of that day saw that everything the temple symbolized and achieved is now found in King Jesus, who rules over all the universe. There has been a regime change. The temple is dethroned. Jesus is enthroned. See why that matters? Jesus is the king of all kings. He is the glorious, resurrected, ascended son of man at the right hand of God the Father. He rules and reigns over all things. So therefore, if that's all talking about the temple, what does that mean for us today? Well, that's our third point, expecting his return. I do believe this is talking about the second coming. So we got there, okay? Verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. I think this parable is meant to interpret everything that just came before it. And he makes another shift here in verse 32. He's just, I think, talked all about the temple that was destroyed. And in verse 32 he says, but concerning that day, or that hour. He seems to be pointing forward to his return. He's teaching his disciples, I believe, that whatever is happening with the temple is a paradigm for what will happen at the end when he returns. And let's not miss a massive implication here. The temple is destroyed because of judgment. Judgment is coming. Judgment came on those who stood against God and against Jesus in his day, but listen, friends, there will be a day coming where Christ will return to judge the living and the dead, as the Apostles' Creed says. All will stand before him and give an account. And on that day, the judgment on Jerusalem and the temple will be like a drop of water into the Pacific Ocean. So how do we prepare for that day? That's what this parable teaches us. Notice, by the way, there's a shift in urgency and emphasis He's lifting off, listing off all these events that are going to take place, and then you're going to see this abomination of desolation. Then when he gets to his return, what does he say? Well, it's like this man who goes on a journey. He's going to go away for a while. He's not going to be there. And then one day, he's going to come back. But notice, there's no signs given. Jesus seems to be saying, listen, you want a sign about when the temples will be destroyed? Here they are. Do you want a sign for when I come back? There is no sign. No sign is coming. He will suddenly return. The rest of the New Testament makes it clear Jesus will return at a time when no one expects it. The imagery most often used is that he will come like a thief in the night. You know what good thieves don't do? Announce their coming. <laughs> Jesus says, I will come suddenly. It will be unexpected when no one is ready for it, and it will be surprising. So therefore, how should we live 
What kind of lives should we carry on as we await the Master in the midst of all of this tribulation of this world and the fallenness and the chaos and our own sin and suffering and just this world sometimes not making any sense? How do we live? We said it over and over again. How do we live? Two things. Number one, be on guard. Be on guard. He says it three times. And then secondly, stay awake. Stay awake. Notice here the admonition is to focus again on present faithfulness, not future speculation. Jesus is saying here, keep a close eye on your life and on your faith. We are to live with an ordinary, everyday faithfulness as we prepare for the return of the king. And I might add from this passage the emphasis that we are to do so especially in the face of trials, adversity, persecution, and suffering. We are not to fall asleep at the wheel of our life and our faith. We are not to drift into sin or apathy. We're not to be lulled into worldliness, but we are to stay vigilant because the master could return at any time unless he finds you asleep. We stay awake. We stay vigilant. We are beckoned by the kindness of Christ to daily repent and believe Daily, deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow him. We pray, we read our Bibles, we put ourselves in the way of others who are walking this same journey. We look to Christ as we run not a sprint, but the marathon of the Christian life. See, brothers and sisters, Mark 13 is not for speculation of creative theological debates or mere knowledge. It is for encouragement and it is for endurance. It is for an admonition to keep to not throw in the towel, to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, who surely is coming at a time we do not know. And when he comes, may we be people who are awake and alert, on guard, not to be led astray. I want to end with some words from Peter, who fittingly was here for this entire Olivet Discourse. Over in 2 Peter 3, He's addressing this idea of the Lord coming back and people beginning to mock it, which, by the way, happened you know, in the first century. People were like, Jesus isn't coming back. So we're in good, we're in good uh, company here 2,000 years later. Okay? Peter says this, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The idea here is that a scroll is rolled back to reveal reality, and the earth and its works that, it, that are done on it will be exposed. Listen to what Peter says. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. Peter says, that's what's coming in the future, so how ought you to live? Nothing extraordinary. Live holy and live godly. Or, as Jesus says, be on guard. Stay awake. Look at Christ. Follow him. For 2,000 years, the church has boldly proclaimed in faith that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And right now, we can see with the eyes of faith Jesus enthroned on high as the king of all kings 
the one who endured judgment in our place so that we can long for his return, not be fearful of it. And when we realize that, that's when we cry out with the scriptures, amen, come Lord Jesus. Amen? Come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take whatever you wanted to communicate from your word today, uh, the truth from it, and instill it deep in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would point us to the hope of your promised return. Lord, maybe there's some people in this room who are here have not put their faith in you. We're reminded from your word that the Lord has not yet returned because there are more people left to reach repentance. Maybe that's a person in this room today. May they see and behold the beauty and the glory of Jesus, and may they not presume upon your kindness, but may they be drawn to repentance. Holy Spirit, give them the eyes of faith to see and to treasure your goodness and your grace. Lord, for those of us who have put our faith in you, help us to be vigilant. Help us not to fall asleep at the wheel of our lives. Help us to stay awake and alert, not looking for speculations and rumors of things, but looking at you, Jesus, pursuing faithfulness in the present, in the ordinary, in the day by day, and may we link arms together as the family of God and do that together. May you strengthen us with endurance through suffering and hardships and trials for that blessed day when you will return, when you will come and you will make all things right. And until that day comes, we do cry, amen, come, Lord Jesus. We ask that in Christ's name, amen.